Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hey guys, we are coming at you live from the public weekend and we've actually, the, the we've got a live audience but this is part two so uh, those of you listening would have heard last week's episode with my friend Shane uh, but we've got a live audience again. Hey guys, give us a shout out. There they are. Now they've just been doing a few creative things, uh, workshopping, we've had tiling tables, making coffee, what else did you do guys? Photos, taking oh. photos. What What else? Oh, they were painting pottery. Apparently the guys were finding it very therapeutic. Wonderful. Yeah, have you tried painting pottery before, no, I have not. Shane? Before you go, you have to go and paint some pottery. Anytime I think about pottery, you know, because images matter more than the words, there's the, there's that, that famous scene from Ghost, you know, with Patrick Swayze. Yes. And, the, you know, and, and they're, the they're making the... And it's like, oh, man, I can't... That, those images just stick... <laughs> my mum my mom banned me from seeing that movie, so I okay. snuck out without her knowing. Yes, yes. <laughs> no one saw it. Best movie ever, Unchained Melody yeah. is the song. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's a, good, it's a good object lesson, too, on how forbiddance is actually the driving force of insatiable desires. Well, I and didn't so, get that out of it. I just enjoyed the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, well your, your mom forbidden you. Yeah. And that forbiddance didn't work. No, it did not. You, it made you want to do it more. It makes you ask, what am I missing, you know? And so, and, th- and that's the whole, that's, that's actually the whole, you know, point of the whole Adam and Eve story is that, is that there's this, it's a garden and the central antagonist is a piece of fruit. Well, that's boring. Yeah. Unless you forbid it. Yeah. And as soon and as you forbid it. it, now there's this insatiable desire um, for it. And so okay. it, it, it should make us, it should make us question um, the best paths to um, heart change and behavioral modification might not be forbidding everything. Look, I haven't even asked a question yet. There you go. <laughs> it started with pottery and ghost. Well, no, it wasn't called. What was it called? The movie? Ghost. Yeah, it was called Ghost. That's yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. So we've got some questions live from mm. our audience. Um, now, we introduced Shane last episode. So guys, you can go back to that because I want to get right into the questions today. So here's the first one for you. Yeah. Should I argue social justice points on social media or is this not effective? Well, I, I, would, I would just follow that up with a question. Have you found that your efforts in doing that works? Yes. Does it accomplish no. what you're trying to set out? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I've never heard of such a well-articulated social media post that changed someone's mind. Yeah, great. So what happens is, is it's just public in front of everybody vomiting about mm-hmm. the thing that you think is important. It's, it's the height of selfishness, really. It's this, um, this kind of just, I, I hate it. Um, and I think, I think we are, um, uh, when Paul was talking about how Jesus saw the world and what that would look like in a community played out, he said this in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How are we doing with that? 
let's just stop for a second and pause and go. Right. Let's ask ourselves the question, how are we doing with just that one area of what it means to be a Jesus person in our world? Mm. Are Christians known worldwide for doing the least amount of complaining and the least amount of arguing on the internet? I think not. And then, of course, in Titus, Paul takes it even further. Um, in Titus 3, uh, the Christian community writes Paul and says, well, you know, what do we do? The government policies are oppressing us, right? And let's be clear about this. Nero was in charge. And if you got caught practicing yeah. Christianity under Nero, they held you down, they took a stick, and they, they rammed it up your butt. It, it, was, it was called impaling. And then you'd die from internal injuries, and then they'd lift you up and plant you, and the stick would go through your mouth, right? It'd go all the way up. And then, then they covered you in tar and set you on fire to use you as a human candlestick, right? So, so whatever your problem is with ScoMo, <laughs> it ain't Nero, right? Yeah, and, and so they, they write him, and, and Paul says, let everyone who follows Christ devote themselves to doing good in their world yeah. and avoid all controversies and quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and useless. Mm. So... I would say if you took the same amount of energy that it takes to rant on social media about some social justice problem, if you took that same amount of energy and put it into actually doing something, um, you would go further. Mm. It would be far more right, effective. Yeah. And remember, lifting Jesus' name up is a function of demonstration of love for our world, not a demonstration yeah. of articulation yeah right. yeah it's not just announcement it's yeah. demonstration but i think we've got uh you know a time in history where everything is about just making the announcement i think it they is. call it we call it slacktivism you know it's not actually like doing do you like that one i'm gonna steal that one <laughs> slacktivism is slacktivism like, makes you a vacuous person right so like you just you you post a picture of the ukraine flag right, right? now i've done my deal i've done my bit i've done i feel better about myself because I've done and accomplished absolutely nothing. And now I can exactly. get back to my four hours of TikTok viewing. Uh, you know, it's just not effective. Yeah. And then you're made to feel like a really bad person if you don't yeah. change your profile pic yeah, to that, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I mean, like, I've never posted anything on social media in my life. Yeah. In, right. Ever. Like, you're not on Instagram? You just don't post? Well, no, I don't. I've never posted anything in my life. No, I'm, you know, there was a company that came in and said, um, you need to be on Instagram. And I said, well, you do it. I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. So they, they post. But they're under some strict rules, like always encouraging vanilla, yes. non no controversies or quarrels about the law, doing good in our world. Yeah. Um, but I've never. Anybody ever said, Shane posted something? That's a law. Um, and, 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 and part of it is I just hate it. The other part of it is is that when it comes specifically to problems, like, like the, the healthiest people on social media are the ones that are just communicating – my family matters to me. Mm. I love my daughter. Yeah. I love my son. I'm proud of them. Hey, this is my wife. So, yeah. you know, I'm not available. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Th <laughs> yeah th things like this. Um, th those people, those people, that's fine. Yeah. But people who use social media as a platform to just throw up and cathart all over everybody. Mm. Um, it's just not effective. It's boring. Yeah. It's actually boring. Okay, I've got it. This is one of my questions for you, right? You don't go posting on social media, right? But your calendar is full. Very. I can't keep up. You could, right. I'm constantly seeing, don't want to, not going to drop any names or anything, but people who 
are trying to build a brand, Christians, mm-hmm. on the itinerant circuit, and they're just constantly putting up reels of themselves and promoting themselves, and they're the ones that seem to get the full calendars. But it seems so self-obsessed. Look, I, I can't be their conscience, and, um, and people have to do what they feel they're supposed to do to do their thing. I've just never done it, and nor if I ever had to do that to fill my calendar, I just would stop. Yeah. I couldn't cope yeah. inside. It's just refreshing to see a different approach and that, you know, for anyone that feels like they've got to call a God on their life or any in any area that you don't yeah. have to be always branding right. yourself out there. I don't have to, a brand, yeah. Yeah, I, I love yeah. that. That's, I, I, that's a good takeaway. And what's happening, like, there wouldn't even be, there's not even a Tuesday night available for me to speak until next July 1st. Mm. Okay? So, and then that's fixing to fill up now, right? Mm. So, I... I, I I'm not mad at people. Uh, I think people need to do what they need to do. Yeah. Um, I would just ask people to consider, um, before I hit post or whatever you hit to do it, if the whole world converted to this way of thinking, would it make the world better? Ooh, that is and, a great question. And, and if it's not, you know, and, and the other question I would ask is, is, is um, yeah, it's it, one question would be a motive question, and I would never answer that for somebody. Yeah. So if I said to somebody, what, "What's your motive for doing this?" Their motive might legitimately be, "I want more people to say yes to the infinite possibilities that 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 come from a life in Christ." Mm. And I don't care what you're doing. That that, that amen. Yeah. Amen. Um, I and I. That's why I'm reticent yes. to to draw a line, yeah. just because um, it's in a. As inappropriate as it would be for them to go, you're an idiot for not posting. Yeah, yeah. It's equally inappropriate for me to go, you're you're inappropriate just because you post. Yeah. It, when it actually comes down to why, what's what's yeah. the why underneath? But we need to teach a generation to ask those questions because yeah. all they're seeing is the posting, posting, posting. You're kind of the anomaly. Right. And do you really care what somebody ate for dinner? Yeah, I think I care about the effect it has, though, that yeah. then they feel they've got to do it. Right. And then they're chasing after the wrong thing, and then... you got people in real anxiety around somebody getting more likes than them. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, the other issue is, since we're on this, is, and this to me is the biggest danger of all, um, is, not one, rephrase that, it might not be the biggest danger of all, but it's a pretty big danger, mm-hmm. is it becomes, it becomes a fostering Petri dish for envy. Yes. Right? Now, envy yes. is incredibly dangerous because it's the easiest thing to hide, but the hardest thing to admit. Right? So, so like, if, you're, if your sin issue is gluttony, imagine coming into a small group and say, I just need to confess something, guys. I struggle with intense overeating. Likely, no one's surprised. Mm-hmm. Like, they can see it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, if your issue's anger, you can't really hide that. Eventually, yeah. that volatility is coming out. If your issues lust and objectifying people, at, at some point you're going to tell on yourself, mm-hmm. right? Envy is quiet. Envy yes. is like, and envy is hard to admit because it's saying I'm struggling with feeling someone else is better than me or more accomplished than me. Mm-hmm. And here's the problem with the psychology of envy is what you find in envy is normally reasonable people justify doing harm to promote themselves right like yes oh, think about it in the scriptures and then think about your own life cain kills abel mm-hmm. 
Why? Well, if I get rid of him, God will love me. He doesn't have another choice. Well, no, it just, you now live without your brother. Um, uh, Saul tries to kill David. He'll get less popular if I kill him. Um, Joseph gets uh, sold by his brothers, thinking, if we get rid of him, our dad will love us more. No, it's just your dad's now grieving. So what happens with envy is normally reasonable people justify doing violence on someone to get their way. It, it's, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, I have no desire to pastor a church, none. But <laughs> let's, say, let's say I just was jealous of you because you pastor public church, and I just want to. Mm-hmm. Well, the idea that if I do harm to you so that I can take public church, then everybody wins, that's a lie that only envy in someone's heart can tell. Mm. And what happens yes. with social media is, is it fosters envy from almost every level. So, like, there's parenting envy, mm-hmm. right? So this is, this is why if you've ever been at, like, a, a six-year-old's birthday party, what happens is the six-year-olds go off and play, and then the parents sit over here, and all it takes is one mom going, gee, I'm so proud of, <laughs> of June. She's really nailing the math homework this year. She's six. Yeah. Well, then now every other mom has to go, well, that's nothing. My Bobby is a da-da-da-da-da, and, and this one, this one, oh, and my, my Jimmy, he's really, you know. And, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, it, it becomes this horrible yeah. thing. And here's the thing. This is Australia. Like, I don't care how smart Jimmy is. There's already an Asian kid in the corner that's figured out the Pythagorean theorem and how to build a bridge, right? You're, yeah. you, ain't, you ain't smarter in math than them, yeah. right? And so you go, yeah. well, you know, what, what, what have we... So you got parenting envy, then you got, you got relational envy. This is, where, this is where married couples, you know, they post, they post celebrating 10 years, my sugar plum, you know? <laughs> my and, rib. And, and everything, everything in you is like, ah, right? Why? Because... No, everybody posts date night. Nobody posts fight night. Yeah, you, right. You know? or, or, or somebody posts a new car. Everybody, look at my new ride. You know? <laughs> what, no one ever posts. No one ever posts. Ever. They never post. Hey, everybody, look what I just did. I bought something I can't afford with money I don't have <laughs> to impress people I don't like. I just signed up for 8% interest on something that's going to lose 50% of its value. I'm going to be broke for years because of this. No No one. No, no one, no, no one. And so what happens is, is you become envious around a picture yeah. that ain't real. Wow. Which then creates meta envy. Mm-hmm. And people end up in prison to this uh, comparison trap. And so they, yeah. they, here's what they do. They look right and left instead of in and up to get their value. Oh. Right? That's really so, 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 so anytime, anytime you look right and left, instead of in and up to get your value, you get stuck in the land of er, mm. bigger, smarter, yeah. mm-hmm. richer, fitter. And here's the problem with the land of er. To every smarter, there's a dumber. To yeah. every fitter, there's a fatter. Yeah. To, 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 every, to, to, to every richer, there's a poorer. And so if we look right, we feel inferior. Mm-hmm. If we look left, we feel superior. Wow. In no way does that help us make the world a better place. The world is made a better place by avoiding the prison of comparison and envy. Because as people who run an organization, I'm telling you, the biggest threat to public church or any organization um, is not overt evil. It's unchecked envy. 
It's the silent. It's it's when we, it's when we start secretly celebrating, Mm -hmm. if someone else gets in trouble. Yeah. It's checking the internet for people's names, hoping you'll find a scandal. Mm -hmm. It's that dark side of us that only envy, only envy when it gets in there. can convince normally reasonable people that those kind of behaviors are okay. That got deep yeah. <laughs> real quick. Well, That's... I mean, and, and, and if you want to know that, here's one cure for envy, because it's important, it's important not to just point out the problem, but to... Yeah, yeah, right? give us the cure. Well, a, a cure. Um, okay, so a. One, way, one way for envy to break its power on your life yep. is to spend 10 times a day for 10 seconds mm-hmm. only being thankful for what's in your right now. Right, so in faith cultures, we're like, we're believing God for the next thing, right? And, right, and amen. Yep, amen. Yep. We should be asking God, what possibilities have I not seen, right? But for envy, it's important that we also have a spiritual discipline. Ten times a day for ten seconds, only be thankful for what's in your right now. And what happens is, mm-hmm. is you start realizing, man, if God never did nothing else for me, my life's pretty awesome, mm-hmm. right? That's first. S- second is to celebrate publicly the people who threaten us the most privately. So if envy is getting in us, the best way to overcome that is not to fight it. It's to be honest that we're envious and then start celebrating that person out loud. And it breaks the power of envy on your life. Yeah, that's really good. So um, now we've just come from a session earlier this morning where you Mm. did a phenomenal sermon about the decisions that we make in our life. Yes. So there's a question here on, well, how do I know my birthright? You might give some context yep. to that because that's what you spoke on. Yep. Uh, so basically, how do I know what my destiny is? How do I know what it is that I've been put on this planet to do? Um, the fallacy with the question is that the birthright is this magical place that when you get there, you will know you have arrived. Whereas the birthright is more a summary statement of the intent of someone's heart to wake up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for them, right? So if you go, well, um, like you'll never know, you'll never know when you've arrived at it because there is no arriving at it. Yeah. It's actually, if you ever thought you arrived at it and you quit saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for you, well, then that would then begin to sabotage like, this is not a static thing. Uh, Christianity is a dynamic, progressive, moving thing that, that allows us to wake up every day with infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so what was critical about this morning's message is that what we did, if you weren't there, is we, we looked at a story where this guy sold his birthright for a bowl mm. of stew. Mm. Um, and then when he got it, it was just beans. Yes. And so... He sold everything he could be for one momentary urge, and then when he got it, it didn't deliver what it promised. It was just beans. And, and that will be true of your life as well. Your life will, uh, if, you, if, if you trade something permanent for something temporary, when it really gets in your mouth good, it'll taste like beans. Mm. It's a... Um, it's a devastating thing that all of us will deal with at some point in our life yeah. where our life will either be an intentional pursuit of the birthright 
or it'll be a series of living from urge to urge to urge. And what you don't want to do is buy into the lie that living from my next momentary urge delivers some kind of quality of life. Mm. It just doesn't. Yeah, because you were talking about decisions <clears throat> is a ho- making a whole heap of small decisions, good decisions yeah. along the way. A long, over a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you would say then to get to your destiny, because it's not an arrival like you said, it's just a living a life. Yeah. Where you make good decisions, quality decisions, yes. I think is what you said. Along yeah, well, the way. Think, think about it in terms of let's just use one example money, right? Yeah. If I was to ask, if I was to ask the live audience here, how many of you in your late 60s would like to know you have enough money to have dignity? Mm-hmm. Everybody would go, yes. I mean, no one would go, no, I, I, I think I want to be destitute, <laughs> right? Um, but there's no secret on how to do that. Yeah. It's yeah. just, like, seriously, even if you work at McDonald's, okay, and you did that for 45 years and you never got a raise, that's not going to happen, but, right? Mm-mm. If you just invested $2,000 a year from 18 to 65 mm-hmm. at the average market return from 1919 till now, you'd have a million dollars. So it is within everyone's power to be a millionaire. The question is, who's willing to pay the price up front to get what they say they want later? That Part of anxiety, anxiety is a failure to be present, but part of anxiety is the gap between what we intend and the road we're actually on, mm. right? So intentions don't get us where we're going. It's just the starting point. Actually being honest about the road we're on. So if you get on the M1 going south with full intent to get to the Sunshine Coast. Well, you stop in Tweed and you go, where's the Sunshine Coast? And they're like, well, it's... So, yeah, oh, but I intended, I intended to get to the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, but bro, you're on the wrong road, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so it doesn't, it, like, no one, no one intends to be a bad dad, but there certainly are bad dads. And it's not because they intend it. It's because whether you're a good dad or a bad dad is a function of, the road you're on, mm. not intention. No one intends to be broke, but if you do what broke people do, you're going to be broke. Yes, right. Um, and, so, and so we have to be honest about the gap between what we say our intention is and the road we're actually on. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Okay, another question here. Do you think that miracles and the weirder things in the Bible, I'm reading exactly what was said, yeah. were they symbolic, stories, or actuality? Um. Depends on where you find it, and it could be all three. Mm-hmm. Um, if the genre is a poem, mm-hmm. then it's likely metaphorical and poetry. Um, if the genre is historical narrative, then it brings in the possibility that we're dealing with something that actually happened. Of course, in ancient history, uh, meaning trump detail, and so it wasn't inappropriate to put a parable in the middle of a historical narrative if it made a point. And so sometimes what happens is, is we get caught in a very dumb dichotomous debate on, well, is that literal or figurative? Mm. When actuality, the meaning underneath the story, uh, is far more important. Yeah. Yes. Like, like somebody asked me the other day, did I think Jonah was literal? Right. And I said, do you? <laughs> That's intimidating. And they, <laughs> they said, say? and they said, oh, just wrestling with it, you know. 
a guy got swallowed by a fish. Do you think that literally happened? I said, well, I think it's dangerous to live in a universe of closed possibilities where if I can't explain it, it can't possibly be true. That would, that would shut yeah. down mm. hope. Mm. Um, at the same time, the question is, did the, did the original author intend for it to be read literally? Mm. And the fish changes gender. So you have a gender-confused fish, right? The first time the fish is mentioned, it's a male fish. A duck. The second time it's mentioned, it's a female fish. A dakha. And the third time it's mentioned, it's a male fish. A duck. Well, what happened? Well, the fish goes down to the realms of death, rescues Jonah. It's a male fish. When he swallows Jonah, it's a female fish because he's pregnant. And then when, then when he spits Jonah up, now he's a male fish again. And so to sit around and argue about whether that's literal, I think misses the entire point that, mm-hmm. that of how far God is willing to go to even bring things like death back around for new creation, fresh start, second chances, opportunities to write a better story, how, how intent God is to engage our watery chaos in order to land us back on dry ground so that we can get a fresh start and a better story. All, all of that is much more compelling than, I wonder if it's literal. Yeah. And, so some, and so sometimes in the argument and getting caught up in whether everything's literal or not, if we miss the deeper thing underneath the thing, um, then we're just spinning our wheels around this very boring uh, sort of thing. And so, yeah. and so are, are the miracles in the Bible real? Yes. Are all of them, are all the, I, I can't remember how it's worded, like the crazy things in the Bible. Yeah, the weird well, things. Well, some things obviously aren't literal, but, but the, the, the mistake is, is to say, if it's not literal, it's not true. Sometimes, right. the, most prof- sometimes right. the most profound truths are told in non-literal storytelling. Like, I mean, brace yourself. The parable of the prodigal son didn't actually happen. It's a made-up story. Like, if we go to Israel and you ask the historian, where's the farm? <laughs> where's the farm where this guy, right? The guy would be like, what? This is a made-up story. But some of the most profound truths ever spoken are found in that yeah, made-up story. So, good. Yeah. so sometimes if you take something like forgiveness... It's just too deep to be literal about. Mm-hmm. Remember they asked Jesus, they said, what's the love of God like in terms of forgiveness? And Jesus is like, ah! Forgiveness is like owing a king too much money. And even though you want to pay, you can't pay. The king realizes it, you know. And uh, cancels your debt. And then he hopes you're inspired by that to cancel other people's debts. Can you imagine getting to Jesus one day and going, who was the king of which you speak? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's yeah, just not like, the point. no, not the point at all. And, yeah. and so there's certain things that are just obviously poem, like Song of Solomon, like her nose wasn't actually a tower. <laughs> her legs weren't really cedar trees. You know? Her breasts weren't really as big as the hills of Basham. You know, no, it's a, it was a poem. Um, and then there are some things that the original author obviously intended for us to take literally. Like Jesus actually was crucified. Yeah. Right? Um, and then there are certain things that are ambiguous. Like Jonah. Like the rabbis tend to think Jonah belongs in the wisdom section, not the prophet section. Right. Simply because he doesn't prophesy. Mm. Actually, I want to talk about prophecy. Okay. 
Who doesn't like a good prophecy here, guys? Right, we all love a good prophecy. You know when you have someone that comes to visit church and you know they're a prophet? All of a sudden, that's the Sunday everyone comes. (laughs) So can we talk about that? Where This was a question that was sent to, where and how should the gift of prophecy be used today? Uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about that too much, but I, I, I generally the gift of the prophetic functions as encouragement. And the number one test of prophecy in the first century was not did it line up with the Bible. There was no Bible. It was, was it delivered in a manner consistent with the disposition of Messiah? So was it compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness? I think, I see, I see a couple of benefits and a couple of dangers. The benefit of someone operating genuinely in a prophetic gift is it normally... In an, in an encouraging way, stirs up someone to say yes to the infinite positive. It, it, it uh, what would you call it, uh, stirs faith up. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, that's the benefit, and we need it. Mm. The potential problem, though, there's this great line in Acts 1 where Jesus ascends, and it says, they all stood there staring at the sky. And then these messengers show up and say, why are you staring at the sky? The one who went there has called you to do something here. So good. And so my pause with people who rush to church for every prophetic word, like, like these prophets are like you put a quarter in their mouth and pull their arm. And right, <laughs> um, <laughs> is sometimes those people run the risk of being people who simply stare at the sky. Where's my next word? Wow. Where's my next moment? Where's my next God so thing? Good. And then when, when you look at how much they're impacting their world, it, right. ugh. So what we don't want to do is be people simply staring at the sky. Yeah. So That's really good. Okay, are there Jewish traditions uh, or traditions from Jesus' time that would be beneficial to implement in our lives today? Um, mm. Look, any tradition that regrounds you in the Christ that's holding us all together mm-hmm. and reminds us that the Spirit of Christ is filling everything in every way um, and challenges us to live in love for our brothers and sisters is a good ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that makes you more aware of God is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day. They were serious. They, they love cold bathing. Oh, yeah, like in the ice pools? I, I guess. I didn't ice. know what they meant. I, yeah. I, I just went, oh, right. I said, what does it do for you? And they, Like, I ain't doing it. It's torture. Well, I can tell you right now. <laughs> they ever say, hey, did you hear what happened to Shane? <laughs> he had a tragic cold bathing accident. <laughs> That's a lie. Somebody threw my butt in cold water. and <laughs> Right? I ain't doing that. Um, but I asked them, I said, well, tell me about it. They said, there's something about it that I'm never more aware of Jesus and less aware of problems or other places than when I'm, when I'm in that situation. I'm like, yeah. now the problem is, is what happens a lot is somebody finds something that works for them, and then they want to make it a rule for everybody. You know, right. like, every, every, <laughs> if you don't cold bathe, you ain't a spiritual, right? And so there's, there's that. Um, and so 
but like I just think of I think of things like communion. There's a way to take communion. It's like uh, the body of Christ, right? But there's also a way to take communion where you're reminded of something pretty inspiring. Mm-hmm. But not just that. One of the things to me that makes communion so special is it's the one ritual we do in church. It's the one tradition we honor yes. in church where if you're rich, if you're poor, one body. Mm-hmm. If you're black, if you're white, one body. Mm-hmm. If you're a man, you're a woman, one body. Like communion is that ultimate time where we stop and go, hold on, rich, poor, white, black, male, female, there's one Christ holding the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And so anything that does that, I'm all for. Yeah. The, the issue, with the issue with some of it is somebody gets into some Jewish tradition, and we ain't Jews. Mm. And so somebody asked me at Easter one year, would you do a Passover meal? I said, sure. What do you want to accomplish? They said, we want it to be authentically Jewish. I said, no, you don't. Be four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> ain't yeah. no Australian want no four hour meal right I said why yeah. don't we do a 45 minute one where the function and the principles yeah. and then and then we're Australian let's be Australian mm. we're in Australia let's be Australian mm. and there's nothing wrong with that too because a lot of times yeah. what happens is people find beauty in some tradition and then they just want to make it a rule and then they rob the tradition of the beauty they found in the first place yeah. by making it a rule yeah. And yeah. Um, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. So someone sent me an article this week um, of, from America. Uh, so I don't know how relevant this is to Australian statistics, but that now you are considered a regular church attender if you attend three Sundays out of eight. Okay. That's now considered regular. What do you think about that? The drop of church attendance and what can we do about it? Well, there's two, there's two ways to take it. You can scapegoat the people not coming. You ain't serious about God and all this. I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's not a problem. It's the symptom of a problem. Right. The question isn't, why is that the norm? The question is, what is it about church that people don't find compelling? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the church, instead of scapegoating people not being serious these days, man, right? They need to ask bigger questions, which is, what about the most compelling message ever are we carrying in a way that's not compelling? Like, we should be praying this prayer all the time. Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. Right? And so, um, and so you, I have conversations all the time mm-hmm. with 28-year-olds whose 58-year-old parents are panicking because they don't want to be Christians anymore. But when I ask them, you don't want to be a Christian? No. Why? They always say the same thing. I just don't believe that stuff anymore. Mm. To which I just say, well, what was it you were told you had to believe? And you know what? Never once, not once ever, never once ever has it ever been anything about Jesus. Right. It's been a resistance to nationalism. Mm -hmm. It's been a resistance to consumerism. It's been a resistance to literalism. And it's been a resistance to really, really poor eschatology. Right. And to which I just say, uh, who told you you had to believe any of that to be a Christian? Well, that's what the church preaches all the time. That might be why. Right. Right? So, um, yeah, I, I, 
I think it's sad. Yeah, it is. But I think the mistake would be to go, well, people these days are just not as serious, instead of looking at ourselves mm-hmm. and going, what is it about our message that people are finding three-eighths competi- compelling? Because mm-hmm. the other mistake is to go, like I saw a post, somebody asked me about some post, I don't know who posts these things, but somebody basically sounded like an 85-year-old man <laughs> saying, in my day, we were all serious about God. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You can't, you can't be confused as to why the world's going to hell um, in a handbasket when nobody goes to church anymore. Now, the intimation in that is, is that his generation, just because of church attendance, actually live like Christ in their world. Mm. Right? Yeah. I mean, this was an American guy. That generation voted for policies that segregated black people from white people. Right. Yeah. That, that generation actually fought for white and black schools to stay white and black. That generation fought for separate drinking fountains for people of color. But they went to church every Sunday. Yes. So there's a way you can go to church every Sunday and still the way you experience Jesus doesn't change your world for the better. Yeah. Yeah. You imagine Jesus Christ going, um, why is that person drinking from a different drinking fountain than that person? Like, I'm not familiar with the 60s, you know? Mm. And the and person says, oh, they're black. Can you? Who voted for that? Christians. So in the name of Jesus, we treated a certain group of people with less dignity? So, yeah, did that generation go to church more? Yes. But were they actually a more loving culture to everybody around them? No. So just because someone goes to church all the time doesn't equate to being better people in our world. And the church has to deal with that because until that's true, Mm. people might find three-eighths compelling how and some of these should be eight eights compelling. Yeah. How do you think we can deal with that? How can we at public church take responsibility and do that? I think better? the primary thing is making Christianity less about what we believe and more about how we believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. So who cares what you believe? Mm-hmm. The only beliefs that matter are the beliefs that are so in our hearts that it affects our behavior, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and so, you know, I think... Doctrinal statements need to get simpler. And the, 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 the technical term would be, we need to love, we, sorry, we need to lose our love affair with orthodoxy mm. and gain a love affair with orthopraxy, mm. right? That, that a belief, like there's a way to fully believe in Jesus and yet not care about the things Jesus cares about. Right. Right? Yeah. But that's only true if we can separate our belief from our behavior. What we have to do is we have to bridge that gap and go, actually, a good starting point is belief. But until belief is so in you that the word is made flesh and you live a certain way, it's certainly not as effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so well, well, think about it this way. Like, you've, in, you've invigorated something in me. So, <laughs> how did the church grow in the first 300 years? It was illegal. It was under lots of persecution. But yet it grew. Now, after Constantine, that's obvious. But what about before 323? How did the church grow? Well, I just finished a history book on the first 300 years of church history by a historian named Alan Creeder. 
Unbelievable. Here's, and it's an academic book. It's 2,000 bibliography references. 2,000! Wow. <laughs> I'll summarize the book. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Basically, he said the church grew five ways. One, just so in case you don't know, the church in the first 300 years was a private society. There was no public church. Maybe we need to change our name. <laughs> it, it, come, it comes from, if you got caught, yeah. you got the, right? Yeah. So churches, are, they weren't even called churches, they were called uh, communities of the way, mm-hmm. and, and they were private. So church services were not about getting people saved. Mm-hmm. It was about challenging followers of Jesus to live how Jesus taught us to live in our world. And then outsiders would say, I want to live like that. That's how the church grew. And it did it primarily five ways. One, the church of Jesus Christ was the only private society in all of Rome to welcome women. Well, when you welcome half the population, you're going to grow. Second, only private society without a membership fee. So the rich amongst them pulled the weight for the poor. Third, table fellowship. Mm. They all, class ones and class nines, ate at the same table. Wow. It was a declaration that we are not segregated. We, one God holding the so whole good. thing together, the rich and the poor eat together. Yes. Fourth, and I never knew what this meant until I read this book. There's a scripture that says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Mm. I never knew what that was. I'm just glad we didn't do it. I didn't want people kissing me. But it was critical to the first 300 years. Because what would happen is after the table fellowship, the top two classes would kiss the bottom classes to demonstrate to the world, this is how serious we are about one God holding the whole thing together. Fourth. That was fourth. Fifth. This is really important. The book was written in 2016. Mm -hmm. So no COVID. He's not even subliminally responding to COVID. Didn't exist. Mm -hmm. The fifth reason the church grew was response to pandemics. Really? So there was a smallpox pandemic in 251. And what you would do in a pandemic is you would go to the local oracle. The oracles were these people who lived in caves that were thought to have a special thing with God. And you would go to the local oracle and ask, what do we do? So they went to the oracle of Carthage, the city council. And the oracle of Carthage said, four-point sermon. You've offended God. You have to afflict yourself to get right with God or this is going to get worse and the end times are going to come upon you. The Christian bishop was a guy named Cyprian and he preached a four-point sermon in response. He said, Christians never ask why, they only ask how. Because the word lamentations or lament in Hebrew is how, H-O-W question mark. In other words, in the wisdom literature, you never paralyze yourself by asking why. You free yourself by expressing how. That's first. Second, he quoted Titus 3, 8, 9, that followers of Jesus will be known for doing nothing but good in their communities, and we will engage in no controversies or quarrels about the law. We will resource the poor, and we will heal the sick. Which led me to this question. Was the Christian response in this pandemic sounded more like a pagan oracle or a Christian bishop? So maybe you've heard the term apologetics, right? So apologetics to us is I'm going to prove God exists with the ontological argument of the cosmological of the, right? Right? Apologetics in the first century and the second and the third, city councils would call the Christian bishop to come give an apology. 
an apology was giving an answer for if our whole community converted to Christ, you have to prove it would make our communities better. That apologetics was originally an argument for how Christian behavior changes the world for the better, not a defense of what. It was an expression of how. Blown away. That is so challenging, so insightful. And on that note, can we please say a huge thank you to Shane for coming. That was really incredible. So, guys, make sure that you listen. There'll be two episodes. So uh, thank you so Wonderful. much. That Thanks. was really amazing. It was fun. Really good having yeah. you.